uh, today we take a break. It was suggested to us through the church administration, and then a number of you requested that we do the class that we've done, uh, uh, I think, twice before, but it's been a couple of years since we've done it, namely the class about uh, uh, Christmas. So Paul is interrupted this morning, and instead... Instead, we're going to talk about Christmas this morning. So uh, uh, the history of Christmas, especially how Christmas plugs in biblically. And uh, uh, let's uh, just have a little bit of fun and uh, uh, enjoy the holiday for a bit. So settle back, uh, drink your coffee. And uh, periodically, if we need to break forth in song, uh, Denise is right there. She'll stand up and lead us. Right, Denise? Christmas is not a biblical word. Christmas is an ecclesiastic word. It's a, it's, a, it's a church word, now a secular word, but uh, uh, it is not a biblical word. The first Christmas is not found in the Bible. The Bible does not have, you won't find in the index of your Bible anything that says Christmas. If you're looking up in the Bible for where the Christmas story happened, it's not there. It's called the nativity. It's called the incarnation. We'll discuss why as we get through class. But if we want an account of, in, from the Bible of the birth of Christ, we've got two options. We can go to Matthew and we can go to Luke. There are many, many, many different opinions among scholars as to why there are four gospels that are in the canon, who wrote those four Gospels, when they were actually written, and questions of this sort. My personal opinion, having read through a number of those scholars and and chewed on this for three decades at least, is that Matthew, contrary to what most scholars will tell you, I think Matthew was written first. I think it was the first Gospel, which is what church history teaches as well. And then Mark was written Uh, from a different perspective for some other things. And then Luke came along and wrote his third, and John was the last one written. So Matthew is where we'll start with the genealogies of Jesus, because while we don't have a Christmas celebration in these accounts, we do have some information we should look at. So let's zoom, zoom in first on what Matthew has to say. Matthew starts, and the first, oh, 20 verses or so of Matthew chapter 1 deal with the family tree of Jesus. Lays out his genealogy to establish that Jesus was in fact descended ultimately from not just the seed of, of David, but also from Abraham himself. And so we have the, the, the lineage of Jesus set out. And after that, what Matthew does is he sets out the story about uh, Joseph having a dream. Joseph has a dream about uh, uh, Mary. Behold, the virgin shall, uh, shall conceive and, and she shall bear a child and they'll call him Emmanuel. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, not from Joseph, who she was betrothed to wed. The Jewish system, remember, they weren't married, they were betrothed and she was found to be with child. Now, Joseph's got to figure out what to do about this. And so what Joseph does, according to Mary is he decides he's just going to put her away quietly and not embarrass her. That's when the, uh, 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 the dream comes. 
And in the dream, Joseph is told, she'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. Jesus, in Hebrew, is Joshua. Jesus is a Greek name. In Hebrew, it's Joshua. Joshua is made up of two Greek words. The Yah, which we now say is Jah, Joshua, Yah, is short for Yahweh. Shua means is our salvation. So Yehoshua, Joshua as we say it, Yahweh, Jehovah, is our salvation is what it means. And so she'll bear a son, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. And that's what we have. Matthew sets it out, and from this, they shall call him Emmanuel. We have a song. That's what, uh, that's the passage that, that uh, uh, is given. It's out of Isaiah. And there are two Hebrew words involved in Emmanuel. Imanu means with us. And then El is God. Yes, like El Shaddai is God most high. Um, um, so El is God. So, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and and uh, God, that's, that's what he's told. And he has the dream. And we have the song. And so, we get now into chapter 2 of Matthew. And in chapter 2 of Matthew, we're told about wise men who come from the east, the magi. From this, we get the word magic, we add, not from the Bible account, but from magi. And they see a star, and they come from the east, and they come to Jerusalem, and they start asking, where is the Messiah, where is the king to be born? And the quote is from Micah 5.2, but for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you shall come forth one who will rule the people, Right? Now, the remarkable part of this story to me is always that the wise men are the ones who come from the east. They ask the, 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 the priests where the Messiah is going to be born. The priests are bright enough to know the answer. But the priests don't go see the Messiah. The priests are bright enough to know the scriptures, but they don't know what the author of the scriptures is doing with them. Always a danger to any of us, but especially if you study theology. Some of the best advice I ever got. One of our daughters is here today, and she's uh, got religion as, as part of maybe a double major, I think. And her boyfriend's here, and his 
older sister has made a definite choice to make religion a minor part of her life in the sense that she's minoring in it at college. Um, It's a bad joke. I just love it. So I keep making it. Um, Wonderful godly gal. But uh, anyway, she's minoring. One of the things that, that I always want to tell folks who study religion, don't ever let your homework and your study take the place of your quiet time and your devotion. Because it's very possible to learn all sorts of things about God. And not know the God who's doing all sorts of things. And this is the perfect example. So the wise men come from the east because they know God's up to something. They're smart enough to Google the answer once they get to Jerusalem. But the guys who do the Google, who, who give the Google answer, they don't know what God's up to. And so they don't go. But the wise men, they follow the star, they come to the nativity scene, they bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now here's the song. Do you know this song? Okay, so what's the problem here? Yeah, three kings. That isn't in the story. Okay? I mean, it probably rhymes better than singing, We Magi have shown up bearing gifts in a golden cup. Um, But it's not three kings? Where did that come from? Well, three gifts, you're right, made them assume one gift per guy. Okay? Like, uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to bring two. That's taking uh, generosity a little bit far. And heaven forbid you show up without one. Okay? So they figured three gifts, three kings. And then... The early church, see, this wasn't an issue at first because the, 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 the New Testament church doesn't celebrate the nativity and the birth of Christ that we know of. So this becomes an issue a couple hundred years later when the church is looking to try and celebrate it. They figure uh, we celebrate our birthdays. We ought to celebrate the birthday of the Lord. But the early church, early church thought Jesus was coming back any day now. And, and, and the early church for the first 40 or 50 years was Jewish. And back then, Jews didn't celebrate birthdays at all. So it just wasn't an issue in the early church. But once it becomes an issue, the church sees in that passage, Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They'll bring gold and frankincense and good news, the praises of the Lord. Well, you see that golden frankincense? Early church says that's got to be prophetic about the wise men coming. And if you go back to an earlier part of this passage in verse 3, three verses earlier, verse 3 it says, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the early church figured that since verse 6 was talking about the magi, 
And verse 3 says it's kings. Must have been kings. And they figured it was three, either from the three gifts or Origen, an early church father from Alexandria who was really big on an allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Origen said that in the Old Testament, in, in uh, Genesis, Isaac is a, is a picture, an allegorical image of Christ. And King Abimelech comes to him, comes to Isaac with two others. Never mind the fact they weren't kings. But he figured that made it three at least. Because that was supposed to be an allegory of what happened here. So we three kings, eh, at least the magi. They come according to Matthew. And uh, uh, they bring their gifts. They've got the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Then word gets out to Joseph that he needs to wake up, get his family in line, and head over to Egypt. And so, according to Matthew, the flight into Egypt takes place because Herod is slaughtering the innocents. Herod decides, hey, those guys said, wanted to know where the king was going to be born. That means that king thing may be happening. And I've dropped the ball. I need to go ahead and kill all the babies that have been around for the last two years to make sure it's okay. By the way, this is why church scholars today think the birth of Christ probably happened around 4 to 6 B.C. Because Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And so Christ had to have been born before Herod died. And they go back to 6 B.C. because they figure it could have happened any time those last two years because he's killing every two-year-old baby or younger. So that's why, and you sit, if you're like me, I'm a mathematically precise guy. I don't like that. I mean, see that? That's zero. You know what's on this side? B, C. And what's on this side? A, D. This, anything before zero is before Christ. It almost seems like you've destroyed the integrity of Scripture to say Jesus was born before Christ. And this is in the year of our Lord. Anno is year. We get annual from it in Latin. Anno Domine. Then the year of our Lord. Okay. How could the Lord have had four to six years before the year of the Lord started? It just doesn't seem right. But don't blame me. And don't blame your Bibles. Blame this short guy named Dennis. I'm serious. In the 500s, the Pope hires this monk named Dionysius Exegus, which is Latin for Dennis the Short. <laughs> this is the gospel truth. That's exactly what it is. Dionysius Exegus, Dennis the Short, is hired to, to, to do some work for the Pope. And he decides that they need to quit doing the calendar for the Christian world based on when Rome was founded as a city. And instead start keeping the calendar based on when Jesus was born. So he does the math. And he figures out Jesus was born. And we've inherited Dennis the Short's math day. And he was wrong. He came up. A little short. 
So Jesus is not born, contrary to what Dennis would have us think, at zero. He's born somewhere earlier. Okay, when we don't know. But this is what Matthew gives us. Now let's shift over and let's see what Luke does. One of the reasons that that the early church taught, for example, that Luke wrote his gospel was to supplement some of the material from the work and research that he had done. And Luke did exhaustive research. Archaeology has, has much to the chagrin of 18 and 19th century scholars borne incredible fruit to show that Luke was not only precise in detail of job titles and obscure Roman curators' names and things like that, but Luke was astonishingly accurate in a number of other areas as well. So you've got a good scholar who's done good research, even aside from the fact that the church has recognized it as an inerrant product of God. And so Luke gives a gospel account that adds some material to Matthew. Luke starts out with the background of John the Baptist, the skinny guy. Look at that arm. That's what happens when you eat locusts. They do. They paint him in all the early church paintings. He's painted real scrawny. And that's got to be why. So John the Baptist, the background of his mother Elizabeth getting pregnant is told about in the Gospel of Luke. It's the Gospel of Luke generally that we read the, the, the nativity story from because it's a lot more thorough than Matthew's. And so it's in the Gospel of Luke that we have, for example, the angel Gabriel by name visiting Mary. So the angel Gabriel visits Mary. And uh, says, you're going to have a baby. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. She says, I, I don't understand how this can happen. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I've not been with a man. I'm a virgin. He says, the angel says, that's not the point. The point is, this is from the Holy Spirit. This isn't a human child in the full sense of, of the word of father and mother. This is fully human in that you're mother. But fully divine, God is the father. And so... At this point, Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth and there's that visitation and Mary tells Elizabeth, hey, listen to what I've learned about. And Elizabeth says, well, let me tell you what I've got. I'm pregnant with John the Baptist. And the Holy Spirit in John the Baptist causes John the Baptist to leap in Elizabeth's womb when Mary comes up. And uh, uh, it's a wonderful account. And in, in the process of it, Mary sings what we now call the Magnificat. And I'll throw some of it up here for you and see if you remember any of this. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. And my spirit exalts in God my Savior. Mercy will reach. 
fuller explanation of, of some of the role that Mary would wind up taking in this, in this story, as, as Dr. Trammell said it this morning, of here am I. You know, what's your role in Christmas? She said, it's whatever you want it to be, God. Here I am. And so we have that story in Luke. It's something unique to Luke. It's not given to us in the other gospel writers. After the Magnificat, Luke tells us about John the Baptist being born. And then he tells us about Jesus' birth. And he says, uh, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And so uh, everybody's got to go for the census. And Joseph takes Mary and they head to Bethlehem. And uh, when they get to Bethlehem, there's no room at the inn. All of the story that we're familiar with in that regard, it comes from Luke's account. And so Luke gives that information to us. And from that, we get this. Manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky look down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. That King Cole version is one of my favorites. Um, by the way, Silent Night? Eh, not so sure it's all that silent out there with all of the animals. Okay, but uh, it's probably silent for the people later who write the song and think about it because they're not out there in the midst of all the animals. But in the manger, in the feeding trough, whether of stone or of wood, we don't know. Jesus is born in the most lowly of circumstances. God enters the world. Now, Paul, uh, Paul doesn't write about the nativity in the sense of of recounting for us the history. But Paul certainly does mention the nativity several times in terms of its theological implications. And here's one of them. If you remember Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul tells us to have the same attitude that Christ had. Which, by the way, fits also hand in glove with what uh, Stephen preached this morning. Have the same attitude that Christ had. And then he says, who even though he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God, something he had to hold on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance, Paul says, as a man, he humbled himself. Ultimately to the point of death and even a death on the cross. And so what Paul is saying is the nativity is very significant in the sense that it shows What's what scholars call the humiliation of Christ. That Christ was willing to empty himself of all of his. I, we look at the nativity and think glory to God in the highest. And God does too. But if we looked at it from the perspective of secular worldly man. We would think why did why didn't he come to the four seasons. But he came in absolute, abject poverty and humiliation. The lowest way he could. Didn't even have room at the end. Now, the New Testament account, while this is happening though, heaven is rejoicing. And so you've got angels up on the hill talking to the, the shepherds who are feeding their sheep. And what are they saying? 
Unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. And from that account, we have a wonderful song. Angels we have heard on high, sweetly Angels sing in Latin. And so the shepherds relate the story in good English. But once they start telling what the angels were singing, they skipped over to the Latin. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God. Deo is God in the highest. Excelsis. And so that's what the... And so Luke's the one who tells us about that account. The shepherds then, they go find Jesus, and, and we, we have that uh, uh, scene as they come and, and kneel before the, the baby child. And then Luke doesn't tell us about the time headed out to Exodus, I mean to uh, Egypt, the land of the Exodus. What Luke tells us about is the presentation of Jesus to the temple. And so he supplements the story with the part that we don't know from the earlier gospels that had been written. And he tells us about the presentation to the temple. And that's where Simeon is. And when he's come to being presented, he brings the offering of presentation. And do you know what the offering of presentation is? It's two turtle doves. They brought him to Jerusalem. They present, they being the parents, they present Jesus as the firstborn child, which is what you had been commanded to do, the firstborn male, you present as an offering to the Lord. And so Jesus is presented as an offering. Two turtle doves are taken. Uh, uh, I don't know about the partridge in a pear tree. That song can get stuck in your head, by the way, so don't think about it. <laughs> it is Luke that proceeds to give the, the, the Simeon... Uh, Account where Simeon is the old man and he finally sees Jesus and he pronounces the blessing and Anna the prophetess announces the blessing and 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 they talk about how a sword will pierce the heart of Jesus and 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 Mary and Joseph they store these things up in their minds and so we get that extra account from Luke that we didn't already have now there's not that's it that's the nativity scenes that are given in the New Testament. There's not an early church celebration. You can read Acts from chapter 1 to the end and you won't find the early church celebrating the, the birth of Christ. Uh, uh, again, scholars have a number of reasons why. This isn't because of one reason. Uh, there are a number of reasons from the fact that Jews then weren't celebrating births, as I said, to the fact that at first the church thought, and you go to Acts chapter 2 and 3, they're selling everything they have and giving it to the poor because they think the Lord's returning any moment now. So it's not, let's figure out when he was born and let's celebrate that next year when it comes. Okay, It just wasn't in their mentality in the early church. Now, we celebrate it and we celebrate it on December 25th. 
Why on earth do we do that? Well, there are different reasons that are suggested. I've put up here the Saturnalia Festival because December 25th is two days after that uh, week-long festival would have been uh, over. And there's a hypothesis that says the history of religions hypothesis, they call it. It says we celebrate Christmas December 25th because... That's when the Romans were celebrating the sun god. And by the 25th, their celebration was two days over. And they were all crashed out and sleeping. And there wasn't going to be any persecution. And we could probably get by with it without getting caught. And I don't think that's necessarily the answer. I think if it were that, then the church would have picked December 23rd, which is the last day of Saturnalia, when they're all tanked up and doing all their lascivious things and that's your better day of not getting caught and some of them have sobered by the 25th. I don't, I don't think that's the answer. I think there is another very good answer. If you go back and try to figure out when the church did it, we have trouble deciding exactly when the church opted for December 25th. But it clearly had to be over 100 years after the Bible was written. So you don't have any first or second generation knowledge even of when Jesus was born. In fact, we know he wasn't most likely born in December because the shepherds are in the fields with their flocks in that part of the world from March to November. Okay. So, but I don't want to take Christ out of Christmas. So just cut me some slack. I'm just telling you the, the facts. Okay. So how did they get to December 25? I go with the calculation hypothesis. And you've heard me say this before, but let's throw a calendar up there. This is March. You say, what are you doing with March? Oh, I'll tell you what I'm doing with March. March 25th is the, 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 the spring solstice. It's, it's when the church thought Christ was crucified, the early church. Because it's, it's, it's the, the spring solstice. They thought creation happened on March the 25th. So if, if creation happened on March the 25th, the new creation and Jesus' uh, 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 crucifixion, which is the start of the new thing, it would have happened the same day, they reasoned. And the early church had a, a different mentality than some of us do as we read Scripture. And the early church was convinced that when it would say, for example, that someone in the Old Testament lived 130 years, they thought that meant they lived 100 and 30 years, not 130 years in one day, not 129 years, 364 days, is exactly 130 years. Boom. In fact, they were convinced that the real holy saints of the Old Testament always died on their birthday. Because all of them, all of their ages that are given are always to the year. And they thought that was exactly right. So they thought the same would be true for Christ. Most certainly. And they sit there and they do the math. And so they figure out if he's crucified, then that would have been also the day he was born. Ah, no, 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 no. That would have been the day he was conceived. So what do you got to do to get his birthday? At nine months. December 25th. And that's how they get there. Now, like I say, the early church didn't consistently apply December 25th. It wins out over time. 
But the Jerusalem church for the longest times is celebrating it on January the 6th. But once it becomes apparent it's going to be December 25th, and that's what the whole church across the world's adopting, the Jerusalem church and others say, okay, well, January 6th, we'll make that the day the Magi finally show up. That'll be Feast of the Magi. Now, do you know how long it is from December 25th to January 6th? Uh-huh. Those are... Okay, I hate that song. Do not get that song stuck in your head. You will not get it out. I mean, I've got it in my head now and y'all are hearing it. Those are the 12 days of Christmas. Now, have you seen the email or the internet stuff that talks about what those are symbolic of? I researched it because we have had this debate at my house. Do we think that's genuine or not? Nah, I don't think it's genuine. I don't think that's any more what they wrote that for than the man in the moon. The two turtle doves they got from the offering of purification. A partridge in a pear tree, that's David Cassidy in season two, episode four. In the 1100s, they're celebrating a midnight mass to Christ on December 25th. And they'd been celebrating it for some time. And in the Church of England, when they would celebrate the Mass of Christ at midnight, it pretty soon got to be just the thing for the whole day. Christ's Mass becomes our Christmas. That's why Christmas is a church word, not a biblical word. And when I said the Bible doesn't talk about Christmas, it doesn't talk about a mass being celebrated in honor of Christ. How many of you have said before, keep Christ in Christmas? Yeah, I got an email from one of my readers who's, who's Roman Catholic, who read the lesson this week. And he told me, please keep Christ and mass in Christmas. <laughs> because his concern is, is that we'll keep Christ there, but forget to celebrate it. And worship him. And so uh, Christ's mass. Now if we roll forward another hundred years. We can get to 1223. And that's when St. Francis of Assisi. Who's famous for talking to the animals. Decides he's, a, he's an animal lover. He's like the first guy for PETA. He is the patron saint for PETA. Okay. He decides we need a nativity scene. What a great way to teach. So about the birth of Christ. So he's the first one to come up with a nativity scene. And do you know what all of his followers do? The Franciscans, they walk around from town to town and sing about it. And from them come the tradition of Christmas caroling. And that's where it starts. The Puritans, by the way, react to this and say, time out. There is no Christmas in the Bible. How dare you do this? So when you hit the 1600s in America, the Puritans say, if you celebrate Christmas, you go to jail. You can sing, we wish you a Merry Christmas from behind bars. And Christmas is actually illegal in a number of what subsequently become states in America. And uh, uh, that's the way it is for a while, but it doesn't stay that way because we get enough Germans and Lutherans and Presbyterians to come over to counteract all of those Puritans. And all of a sudden, uh, Christmas is making its appearance now. In 1809, there's civil unrest in New York and St. Nick makes an appearance. 
That's Nick Jonas. My mistake. It's the wrong Saint Nick. My mistake. Um, Saint Nicholas, let's just talk about history for a moment. In the 300s, there was an archbishop uh, uh, over in Turkey, what's now Turkey, and his name was Nicholas. And what Nicholas was fond of doing is helping people anonymously. And so he had supposedly, for example, ransomed a girl from a, a, a prospective marriage by paying money into a dowry that he put in through some covert means through the house with the promise that it would never be revealed who it was that did it. And, and, and it was Nicholas who became the patron saint of sailors. And so it became a, a, an, an answer to prayer almost uh, when there was a lot of civil unrest in New York in the early 1800s. And in 18, uh, 1810... We would read uh, about Washington Irving who would tell us about uh, 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 St. Nicholas coming and, and, and making visitations uh, 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 in his day. And that over time gets shifted. You know, it's really interesting to look back. And what we're going to do because of, of, of certain presences here this morning is just tell you that if, if I've got some great Christmas album books, actual books that go back in date, real fun. Here is, for example, an, an 1846 book about Christmas Eve, the story of poor Anthony. And this is, an, is a, a wonderful book that provides interesting stuff about a manger scene, gifts of fruit and nuts. That was big in 1846. If you go forward a little bit in time, you can go into the 1870s, and you can actually find Christmas trees being used in the 1870s. And these were probably brought in from Germany. And so uh, uh, the Germans, uh, uh, you know, the beautiful Christmas tree they once had in Germany is what this reads about here. Because Germany would hold Christmas trees, but, but we were kind of new to celebrating it here in America. Um, 1875, here's a wonderful description of Santa Claus. One of the first that you'll find in literature like this. And so those of you who are interested in knowing about Santa Claus's deer, it talks about him, 1875. You can go to 1883 and get more. Here's one of the earliest photos of Santa, 1883. This was before Coca-Cola got a hold of him. And the American Tobacco Society. And uh, talks about when Santa comes with his pack full of toys and candy and cake for the good girls and boys. And uh, so that's been around for, for a little over 100 years now like that. And if we keep going, I can let's skip through a slide or two real quick, I think is the best way to do it. Forget about him for a minute. Uh, I will tell you this. Um, the Night Before Christmas poem was written in 1822 by Clark Clement Moore. And it was a great poem. <laughs> Remember this? You got the song down? You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen Okay, he's singing But do you recall the, the most famous reindeer of all? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Reindeer? Oh, 
Okay, so what happened there? Well, welcome to full-blown commercialism of Christmas, folks. 1939, Montgomery Wards is looking for a new gimmick, a new sales pitch. And so they decide the story of Rudolph is what they need. So they publish the story of Rudolph. The song is told, and you can get wonderful gifts now at Wards. All of the things that pertain to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. In fact, in this envelope, is a push-out puzzle toy of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And when you get home, look what you can do. You can bring Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to life by pushing out the pieces of this puzzle and fitting them together snugly as pictured here. These are your Christmas greetings from Montgomery Ward. You're saying, is that for real? Oh, yeah, it's for real. I haven't put it together yet. But uh, I think that's the nose. <laughs> so... Christmas becomes commercialized, and the neat thing about it is, if you're Montgomery Wards who went bankrupt, that's why you don't read about them today, children. Look at this. When you're at Wards, be sure to see all of these. You can get the deluxe edition of the famous Rudolph story. It's got 42 illustrations. Now, Paul Wing has recorded Rudolph for RCA Victor. It's the hit of the year. This is Paul Wing at his best. See, Paul Wing at his best. You can now have gay Rudolph slippers and jingle all the way. Put, put that with your Rudolph sweatshirts for the young children. Your big Rudolph cuddle toy that's amazingly low priced and 15 inches tall. And you can get a box of three Rudolph puzzles for children. Now, I would suggest to you, with all the fun and frivolity that goes with that, somewhere along the way, we lost the message. And it's become extremely commercialized. And while they wish you a Merry Christmas, they left out Christ and Mass. And so, I want to leave you with a couple of points for home. Point one. Luke wrote not simply for his first reader, but he wrote for the church, his gospel account. So Luke would say to you, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. To which we can join with the angels and say, glory to God in the highest. That's what I need is a savior. Point two. He was given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Thank you, Lord. I got a passel of them I needed saving from. And I'm sure I'll have a passel more before I'm done. The nativity and the incarnation is important. Because it leads to Calvary. If you take away Calvary, the incarnation has no importance to us at all. But if you take away the incarnation, Calvary has no meaning. It has the meaning of a good man dying for us. But the death is to no merit. It took God to pay the penalty. So the incarnation is what gives meaning to the cross. And the cross 
is what gives meaning to the incarnation. And together, we have salvation. So glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased, among those of the forgiven. And with that peace, I wish you a Merry Christmas. And we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you all.